Lena Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. Hi, everybody. We're here today with Dr. Corinne Katzbeth a recent graduate from the doctoral program at the Oxford Internet Institute, and a cultural anthropologist whose research focuses on internet infrastructure politics, engineering cultures, and technology policy and governments. So hi, Corinne, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you so much for uh, for inviting me and having me on, I really appreciate it. Yeah, so maybe for our listeners, we could begin a bit with your background and interests. So what got you interested in the politics of internet infrastructure and human rights, and how did that lead you to the DPhil at OII? So um, thank you so much for for the question. I I think, you know, sort of the personal motivators of of researchers are such an important topic and and one that's often um, forgotten. Um, So to explain a little bit about how I ended up being interested in the politics of internet infrastructure, I essentially want to dip back to um, 2011. And so at the time I was living and working in Brazil um, and I became involved with a local organization that supports uh, frontline human rights defenders in the, in the favelas. And I had visited Brazil essentially for all of my life. Um, part of my dad's family is, is from there. And so at the time, uh, obviously the activists that I worked with had started using sort of um, early social media apps um, to support their work, to be able to document police violence uh, and in their various calls for justice. Um, and keep in mind, 2011 was also coincided with the Arab Spring. So there was a lot of sort of brouhaha and big statements around the ability of the internet to you know, topple dictators and foment democracy and give voice to the voices, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I was actually quite skeptical of all of that because of what I saw when I was in Brazil um, that, yeah, sure, it, it helps to have these kind of technologies that allow you to speak back and to document. Um, but in the end, you know, this is a technology that's layered upon societies that are incredibly um, divided. Um, it's uh, and shaped by, by existing inequities. I mean, the use of these technologies is shaped by existing inequities. So what I saw then and there was that, you know, these kind of um, internet technologies can't in and of themselves bring structural change and not even when they're used by people who are incredibly adept at using them. Um, It actually opens up an additional vector of attack for them, which is what I saw with people that I worked with, they would get stopped by the police or would force them to open up different apps to sort of show what they were talking about and with whom and like get really intimate details into the networks of resistance that that existed. Um, So essentially I I was quite, skeptical. And this led me to sort of further interrogate how the internet was being used for social justice activism and what happened when it was. And so eventually in that process, I became um, interested in what I almost saw as the inverse of activists using social media apps by looking at what the engineers building the infrastructure of the internet thought about their role as political players. Um, And so in 2016, five years after my work in Brazil, um, I ended up returning to academia for a PhD or a a DPhil as I call it in the UK uh, at the Oxford Internet Institute. 
And there I focused on how the politics of internet infrastructure organizations um, and its technical communities uh, impact the supposed revolutionary uh, promises of the internet. Um, and what I found perhaps you know, somewhat disappointing is that uh, those steering the development of the internet's infrastructure often do so by instilling their, it with their own um, narrow and often somewhat conservative, heavily American values. Um, but to end on a little bit more of a cheery note, um, I did also meet a wonderful uh, crew of technologists, of human rights activists, and of NGO folks, and others who are doing the, the really hard work of making sure that the technologies underpinning the more visible aspects of the internet um, are becoming more inclusive of social concerns other than the corporate demands that you know, tend to drive most of the network and its development at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's always nice to include something cheerful as we sometimes tend to be a bit um, <laughs> uh, dystopic, apocalyptic on, on the podcast and in, the, in this field. Um, but that was so interesting. And I find it really interesting too, because you know a lot of the times the research in this area focuses on that more visible layer. So like the Facebooks and the Twitters and you obviously your, your research focused on um, the internet engineering task force, which is something that, you know, Having studied this, I hadn't heard of it before. Maybe, maybe other people won't know more than me. But you know, it's kind of like a layer below. So, so I wonder if you could you could explain explain a bit. You know, what the IETF is and what exactly for the uninitiated amongst us, what what internet protocols really are. Sure, of course. Um, what I'm going to do though is try and uh, answer this question in reverse. So I'm going to start with what internet protocols are, um, what they do, uh, and how, and then move to how uh, the Internet Engineering Task Force is involved in developing them. Um, so the Internet Engineering Task Force, or ITF for short, is essentially central to the continuing development of internet infrastructure. Um, and to understand its you know, precise role requires a bit of a technical background on the functioning of the internet. Uh, and the standards or protocols that the organization, the ITF, produces. So um, at their core, internet standards are essentially agreed upon rules that facilitate compatibility between different internet products and enable the exchange of information across you know, the, the vast infrastructure of the internet. And to put that in a way that's a little bit less technical and, and more easily recognizable, um, I mean, all of us have had weeks, especially in the last year and a half, that have been hard and long. So, you know, it's a Friday afternoon and we want to start our weekend by watching a movie on you know, whatever streaming platform we prefer, whether it's Netflix or HBO or whatever. Uh, these kind of companies produce the content um, that is available on their platforms. And what subsequently happens for that content to go from them to us is the following. So when you start a show, the content moves from the servers of the company that produced it uh, to our consumer devices um, across a network run by telecom providers like British Telecom, Verisign, Turk Telecom, depending on where you are. And on the journey from uh, the servers or the computer of the company to your device, the content actually is routed by companies like Cisco or Huawei. So it's you know given directions and sent to us. Um, or alternatively, and this is something we see more and more, is that the content is stored and delivered via what is called a content delivery network, which is essentially a sort of an overlay on top of the internet that makes sure that um, content is stored close to where people are likely to request it, which means that it loads really quickly 
to your computer. Uh, and this is done by companies like Cloudflare or Akamai. Uh, and either which way, each of these different steps require companies and their networks to be able to speak the same language so they can transport data from their servers to consumer devices. And now this is where the work of the Internet Engineering Task Force matters. This is where standards matter. Without internet standards, these various companies wouldn't be able to communicate effectively. And so the ITF's role in all of this um, actually predates the commercial use of the internet. Um, the organization was instrumental in developing early networking technologies, uh, like for instance, the IP protocol, which enables uh, network devices to interconnect and internetwork. Um, and so they continue to play a really cool, crucial role in developing these protocols that um, you know, steer how content is delivered to us and that make sure that essentially the internet can, um, yeah, internet work. So I wonder then we kind of have a sense, like, you know, you focused on, on human rights and um, uh, internet infrastructure. And I think there's sort of like an intuitive sense that we all have about how something like Facebook can be political, right? If, you know, their algorithms are choosing what, what posts you see first, obviously, you know, news information um, is sort of inherently political in a sense. Um, but I wonder how can this internet infrastructure, as you kind of delved into in your research, how can it be political? So like, how can something like internet protocols harm somebody's human rights? Yeah, I mean, it's such a good and such a hard question at the same time. And, and I'll try again to take them in the reverse order. Um, for me, from where I stand, I don't think there is such a thing as neutral infrastructure. Um, in the infrastructure of the internet um, is always political. Um, but, you know, seeing that does beg the question um, of what we mean when we say that infrastructures are political or that internet infrastructure is political, because it's easy just to sort of um, throw out this statement um, without explaining what you mean by political. And so for me and throughout my PhD, I focus on how internet infrastructure as it's developed um, in the IETFs and through the IETFs protocols is political. And for me, I think that these politics are visible in what um, in the arrangement of power uh, to draw from the work of Langdon Winner and Laura Donardis, contained in the IETFs design principles, but also in its organizational narratives and in its working practices. And what we see is that for me, um, this, this, this notion of, of political uh, and the power of the IETF is really expressed in the ability of engineers to enact their values through the design of um, IETF standards. And what I also show is that, you know, many of these engineers actually tend to dismiss the role of politics in their work to protect the status quo of their organization. Um, rather than necessarily reflecting a genuine belief that their work or internet infrastructure is um, apolitical. And that also brings me to your question of how internet protocols can harm someone or violate their human rights. Now, I want to tread really carefully here um, because this is not obviously not a simple causal relationship. Um, rarely is it possible to point at the technology and say, oh, look, that technology harm, uh, harms human rights without seeing it in the broader social context of relations that make such harms possible. Um, 
I'm obviously not a technical determinist uh, and my whole PhD research actually highlights the importance of people and the culture behind uh, the organization to explain and understand how harms can arise in uh, the development of, of protocols. Um, simultaneously, the arguments that some of the human rights defenders and um, public interest technologists that I study make uh, also reflects this particular nuance. So in the case of protocols, um, the folks that I work with are often worried about how certain choices, for instance, um, around whether or how to protect sensitive data can tilt uh, the playing field and the power relations between different tech companies or between tech companies and end users. Now, sometimes these discussions are about how a choice to encrypt something makes it harder on the one hand for governments to survey people uh, or filter content, but at the same time, this very choice to encrypt something can also consolidate power within uh, the hands of one of the existing tech giants. So when it comes to the question of like, how do protocols lead to harms? Um, there are rarely any sort of easy answers. Um, and what I saw is that those advocating for the protection of particular values or the protection of particular communities are often stuck between a rock and a hard place. Um, having to sort of decide which concerns, like for example, um, government surveillance or power consolidation in the tech industry is the most salient in any given protocol or is most relevant to the work that they do on a regular basis. Um, and then there's always the subsequent question of implementation, right? Because, and this is really important to mention, especially in the case of the Internet Engineering Task Force, the IETF develops these protocols. But subsequently, these go into the market, right? And the ITF does not um, sort of, it doesn't prescribe how protocols are deployed or how they should be used. So to make that a bit more concrete, um, the IETF, you know, the IETF, or put it differently, to, to draw that out into an example that's a little bit more tangible, um, let's say the ITF was in the business of developing cars um, they make the cars, but subsequently they don't police or prescribe how the car should be driven. Um, that is really up to the driver and the laws that she is beholden to or the roads that she drives on. However, the ITF as a car manufacturer can decide to build in additional security features or not. Uh, and I believe that it is in that particular uh, decision space that the ITF can have an impact on particular values like human rights. Because deciding to build a particular feature, even if you're not the one that decides on whether to uh, enable it or not, um, does define the palette of options that is avail uh, available to the people who eventually have their hands on the stair. That's such a good analogy. I like that a lot. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting, this question of like how values can be like in, encoded or designed into infrastructure, technology, what have you. So I think many of our listeners will be like familiar with John Perry Barlow's Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace, which is sort of like the epitome of um, like the tech utopian, individualistic, libertarian, American white guys who were like, you know, in mythos designed the internet um and then and then it's sort of interesting because then there's this you know 
in a sense, people say almost like, oh, like they were wrong. Obviously now like internet and technology is being used by like authoritarian states. So is there something about this technology where they just really naive or did they design it poorly? Um, uh, so, so I wonder if you, you could talk about like how did those values actually impact the invention of the internet and how does that kind of influence today as well as you know how history like we don't really hear about this a lot but like how have human rights organization tried to influence the creation and development of internet infrastructure yeah so th there, there's a lot in your question and I think part of the difficulty in answering it lies in the you know, in the definition of who, who we consider to be part of, you know, the human rights community. And the interesting thing is, the thing that is so great about the IETF um, is that some of the people who are there have been participating in the organization for, you know, the entire 30 years, uh, 30 odd years that it's been in existence, which also meant that, you know, they were there at the start of the internet, right? They were there when the internet was not the internet yet. Um, and when I talk to people like that who were involved in the early development of the internet, um, well, they do tend to talk about themselves, not necessarily in terms of human rights, but as like being part of um, a group of civil society folks um, or engaged members of the public. I mean, they were often PhD students like ourselves who were just developing this technology, not necessarily knowing what it would lead to, but definitely hoping that it would have you know, a net positive impact um, on society. Now, I want to bracket that by saying, you know, there were also, of course, those involved who worked for the military or um, who were working for companies who that received military contracts, and that's, you know, slightly different dynamic. But so that is one part of it. Um, so a lot of the people who are involved in developing the internet tend to think of themselves as definitely an engaged public. The direct involvement of human rights organizations in internet infrastructure organizations or internet governance organizations is a bit more um recent um and again this raises the question of who you consider to be a human rights organization and, and you mentioned that john perry barlow in his declaration um you know in which he essentially tries to ban governments from being uh, heavily involved in the internet and then claiming it as a, as a space for the mind um and interestingly perry barlow was also involved in setting up the the electronic frontier foundation or the eff which has been heavily involved in questions of internet infrastructure um however in terms in the terms that i use in my phd i would not necessarily consider um the eff to be a human rights organization as their work isn't necessarily led um, by the universal declaration of, of human rights as such which is kind of the guiding document for those in the human rights um sector so in that sense, I would say that the entry of human rights organizations in a way that we know them, so well-established organizations with the UN Declaration of Human Rights at the kernel of their mandate is much more recent. So let's say, you know, between 2012, 2014. Um, now, in terms of the individualism and the libertarianism that, you know, underpinned the internet of John Perry Barlow, um, yes, that is still very much in place. Uh, or at least it is very much in place for the people that I've spoken with. Um, throughout my PhD, I actually trace how these kind of values influence the work of the human rights advocates and why it actually makes their work harder than you would expect. 
Um, because what we see is that many of these human rights organizations are, I mean, they're obviously interested in questions around the internet. I mean, you, you can't not be if you're a human rights organization at the moment. There's so many of the key sort of questions around uh, human rights have digital components. I mean, freedom of expression, anti-discrimination. I mean, these are all have technical flavors. Um, and these organizations are interested in coming to places like the Internet Engineering Task Force because on paper, they look like they're open and accessible. Right? So the IETF in that sense is quite unique that essentially anyone who's interested and has an email address can sign up to their working groups, can start contributing to the mailing list, which is where many of their discussions take place. Um, but at the same time, the culture of this organization is, is quite rough, right? It is not very accessible. Um, and this is one of the things that we see, and this is how you see how these particular values of individualism and libertarianism play out and sometimes clash with what human rights organizations are trying to do because they're essentially trying to push back, not just on particular technical proposals around, for instance, oh, we should encrypt more, but also um, around what kind of values are translated to the network and which aren't. Um, so in that sense, I do believe that like the role that these values play uh, and continue to play in the internet um, should be seen as a key hurdle to including more social justice oriented agendas. Yeah, one of the things I thought was so interesting about your research and that I've definitely seen like reflected anecdotally when I talk to, you know, colleagues or, or friends who are um, like on the engineering side of this is this um, what you call engineered innocence, right? This idea that um, it's, it's not, what they're doing is not really political in any sense. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about like that and the culture that you, you saw um, at IETF. Yeah, of course. I mean, um, going over my interviews and quoting them, um, I often noticed that, you know, when I tried to ask engineers about how they saw their own role in larger political debates, right? And again, I'm, I'm coming back to the debate about encrypting and encryption because it's it's such a um, hot button issue and, and it remains so, right? And it's it's not that these engineers are unaware of the fact that whether or not to encrypt something um, is a political choice, but they would often say, I'm just an engineer. Um, and this phrase I mean, was one that they sort of invoked repeatedly when I asked them, you know, how do you, uh, think about the social ramifications of your day-to-day -day work. Um, and essentially what I think they meant by this statement is that, you know, they wanted to portray their work as technical rather than political. Um, and throughout my PhD, what I try to show is why IETF engineers purposefully present their work as devoid of politics, right? And I describe this denial of politics by, you know, coining a term uh, engineered innocence, um, by which I mean sort of the, well, essentially the deliberately and socially constructed position of blamelessness um, for the real world consequences of the decisions that they make within the context of the technology that they develop. So in this case, standard setting. And the reason why I coined the term and the reason why I wanted to really show that um, when engineers say that their work is apolitical, 
they don't necessarily believe this to be so is for two reasons. The first one is that there um, is quite a bit of talk about how engineers just don't get it, right? How they're cultural dopes, how they're just not bright enough to build this incredibly elaborate system, but understand that it has social ramifications. And I wanted to push back on that. Like the engineers that I, that I met, many of them are very considerate, right? They understand the political ramifications, but they have other motivations for saying, no, no, my work's not political, right? And sometimes that is because they have a, a genuine concern about government intervention, right? They don't want the government to come and intervene in the work that they're doing because, and they're not wrong to a certain extent, because government-led technology development is not always the best kind of technology development. So, um, and there are others who said like, you know, if we say that our work is political, then we invite not just scrutiny from governments, but from a whole bunch of actors that are just gonna make our already really hard life even harder. Um, so that's one reason as to why I wanted to push back. And I think the other reason why I wanted to show this particular dynamic of engineered innocence is because it is often also sort of invoked by the technologists to downplay the power that they do have, right? To make sure that they can safeguard that power and that they can um, essentially rebuke calls for increased accountability um, over their work. And so what I hope that I do by using this term is to make apparent how these engineers sort of almost invoke a, a faint naivete um, when they are confronted with the political consequences of their actions. And, you know, making that dynamic apparent is really important to have real consequence, sorry, real conversations about the contours of the responsibility uh, they have for the consequences of their design decisions. Um, and by extension, you know, they're for the responsibility that they have collectively in, in essentially steering, you know, what is the future of the internet? Yeah, it's it's so fascinating that that cultural dynamic in terms of like how how the group is perceiving themselves and, and for what purposes. Um, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit too about, you know, one of the things, the other things I found really interesting in your research is how global politics and inequities and inequalities get expressed or reflected. Um, it was really interesting around like the power dynamics you highlighted around like the global North, the global South, as well as gender, race, language. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how those kind of wider like political power dynamics or, or you know, inequitable systems get expressed within the IETF. Um, and then also, you know, the question always around this is, is how do how do corporate interests uh, get reflected? So I'm wondering if, you know, do the big tech giants like have outside influence in this type of organization? If, if so, how, how is it that they're exerting it? Yeah, I mean, starting from the question of corporate interest, I mean, what you see in organizations like the Internet Engineering Task Force is essentially also what you see at higher levels of the internet, so to speak. So um, Google, Apple, Facebook, or Meta, um, Huawei, Cisco, I mean, these are all the big names that we know. And these are also the big names at the moment that, you know, whose voices um, matter more within the ITF. Now, if you say this to an ITF engineer, 
they will choke on their coffee. We, and they will say, no, 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 no. Everyone is here on their individual title and every voice counts. And while that might be true on paper, it's not entirely how it functions in practice. And this is something that I saw on a regular basis, right? And, and there's a good example that I, that, I, um, that I wrote up in my PhD of what that looks like in practice where one engineer who I sort of asked like, you know, what do you think the, the roles of human rights activists within these technical debates and do they get listened to? And he said, you know, sure, if someone has a reputation as being technical, technically knowledgeable, and then some of the folks who, who, are, who draw from the human rights community have that reputation, if they have a particular concern about, you know, a protocol that's being developed, they'll get listened to. But keep in mind that if someone who works for Google steps up and says something, people will listen a little harder because they all collectively know that, you know, if Google is in favor of something or against something, I mean, they have such a big share in the market that if they flip the switch, I don't know what, 89% of the internet will run on it. And that kind of, you know, um, representing that kind of an internet user base is weighed differently than, for instance, when you work for a very small company or you work for a company in a different industry or you come from a human rights organization. Um, so what we see in that sense is that, you know, corporate interests have this very large influence um, because they are the internet in many ways. Um, and they have what um, what Ingrid Burrington, uh, who's, who's one of my favorite scholars on, on this in this field, recently described as the means to computation. So these companies own the hardware, they own the cables, they own the data centers, um, as well as the applications that we all use, as well as the content that is streamed. Um, and, and on top of that, I want to say that, you know, corporate expertise in this particular context is not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. Um, the problem is that, the, that there are only a limited number of companies across the different technologies that make the internet function that have a lot of power in all of them. Um, and that their interests are often stakeholder interests and that stakeholder interests are very different from the public's interest. Um, and that is what makes it so worrisome that so many components that make up the internet and its infrastructure are in the hands of so few companies. Um, and, and this is also sort of, you know, the call that I always make to people who say internet infrastructure is really relevant. It's very technical. I don't understand what's going on. Um, like I'm a platform governance scholar and that's what I focus on. Um, and I always push back by saying like, A, platform governance is also an incredibly technical topic, right? Like if you're doing that, that you understand AI and algorithms and all of these things that I don't understand. Um, so I wouldn't be too concerned about that. But the other thing is, if you are interested in platform governance, you are interested in internet infrastructure, right? And a good example of that is um, Facebook is heavily involved in laying new internet cables. Amazon, which you know many people will think of as the retail company that treats their workers really poorly, um, its main business at the moment is cloud infrastructure. Right. So again, we, we come back to this question of, of you know, where is the power? Um, and, and it is within the hands of these, these few companies. And that's also how they exert it. Right? They exert it by um, almost, I don't know, collecting different parts of the stack and establishing dominance in, in all of them. Yeah, I know. 
AWS and its cloud computing arm is one of my favorite topics to rant about. It's outrageous how much um, they control and how kind of unaware we are, are of it in a sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wonder, you know, even with something like the big, you know, I study corporations. And so even with something like, like corporations like Amazon or Google or, or states, it kind of gives us a, an institution, an organization, an entity that we think of either that like human rights can apply to or that in some way can can like take action. Um, but infrastructure, even when it's corporations controlling infrastructure seems like more like a process or a system. Um, so I wonder then like from, from your research and, and, you know, kind of your wider work, like how should we think about like a human rights framework applying to something like infrastructure and where is that entity? Is it the corporation? Is it the state? Or is it something about the system itself in which advocates or activists can organize to affect change and, you know, pre preserve human rights? I mean, given given your expertise, I'd also love to hear what your question is is to this, um, because I, I imagine this is right up your your wheelhouse as well. Um, so for me, um, what I've seen is that the legal limits of the human rights framework, which is obviously state centric, um, and and provide only sort of limited obligations and you can't even call them obligations technically speaking they're called responsibilities on companies um provide a real barrier to civil society folks who are working with the human rights framework as their main framework to foment change um, in the internet industry and that is not even taken into account some of the more well-known sort of feminist critiques of the human rights framework as being too narrow to address some of the biggest concerns around inequity and injustice, especially uh, economic inequities. But setting those aside for now, um, I do think there is change that advocates can achieve by drawing from the human rights framework. Um, one of the examples that I've seen, which is you know an incremental step in the right direction, is when they get um, tech companies to do human rights impact assessments of their work, um, which essentially you know ask them to think through all of the different aspects of their work and. Um, write out how it can have a potential negative ramification for, for human rights. Um, another way that I've seen civil society be really effective in here, I want to give a shout out to the work of uh, Fiki Janssen, who's doing really great work on this at the Data Justice Lab at Cardiff, um, is by way of government procurement, right? So governments can make it mandatory upon companies to have done human rights impact assessments of their technologies before they're allowed to enter the market. Um, and in these processes, civil society can both lobby governments to put such requirements in place, uh, or even if they feel comfortable doing so, they can directly support the efforts of the companies doing these assessments. Now, of course, the latter, civil society helping companies, open up uh, opens up uh, another whole sort of can of worms and, and one that you also touched on in your, your conversation with Dr. Matt Mahmoudi. So I, I won't go into it too much, but I do think there is a real question here of you know, the extent to which we as academics, but also activists should work with these companies um, 
in 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 doing these kind of impact assessments and and that of course you know sort of depends on whether you take um i guess a more radical or a more incremental view on on how change is achieved in society um but for the activists that i worked with some of them were comfortable to provide that kind of support others said no you're on your own there but i'll point you in the right direction so there uh, there, there's a broader spectrum there um and I think this is this is the the tricky bit. So the human rights framework, yes, it can be used to achieve change, but it can also be used um, to co-opt change, uh, to maintain or even cement the status quo, as it is a really difficult tool to wield if you want to address social and economic inequities. Um, and I think one of the roles of scholars like you and I is to like point out those dynamics, right, and to you know, not be too keen to celebrate companies when they said, oh, we have a human rights policy now, or we've done an impact assessment. By saying like, okay, great, great step in the right direction, but let's see what you actually did. Because you do tend to find that when you dive in a little bit deeper, you see, oh, they only focused on values that are salient to their company, or they structurally uh, leave out questions of how they treat their own workers, or, you know, there's always all of these exceptions. And they often tend to speak to sort of the core business of these companies that they don't want to touch on because, you know, um, moving them to become more human rights respecting also means hurting their own bottom lines. Yeah, I thought that a lot with the Facebook BSR report on Myanmar. You just think, oh, thanks for acknowledging it and continuing <laughs> to do the same thing. Um, well, thank you so much for all of these like incredible comments and insights. Um, as a last question, um, I always ask our first time guests, and I hope you might come back and be a repeated guest. Um, but if you could recommend one policy prescription, whether it's to an international organization, a state government, tech corporation, or even something like the IETF, um, what would it be? Oh, God. Um, so I, I think if it's one recommendation, I think what I hope that people will take away from what we've discussed today is that it is really important um, to be aware of the fact that just because internet governance organizations like the Internet Engineering Task Force um, are described or self-describe themselves as open and accessible doesn't necessarily mean they are. Um, what I've seen in my work is that both technologists and academics tend to conflate the technical um, accessibility of these kind of internet governance organizations um, with their uh, cultural accessibility. Or to put it more bluntly, just because you have an open mailing list doesn't mean it's accessible to all, right? It's also about how these mailing lists, how the tone of the conversation on these mailing lists, the extent to which people will respond to names they've never heard before, um, all of these other much more sort of nuanced nitty gritty of what makes up the culture of an organization is incredibly shaping in, in who ends up being able to have their voice heard. Um, and many of these organizations are not that open culturally. Um, racism and sexism are real cultural barriers that I've seen. And that's just to name a few, um, as is, you know, the Western orientation of these organizations and, and more of sort of more generally, their, their working practices, which tend to be quite abrasive, quite rude, quite loud, 
uh, that doesn't speak to everyone. And the people it doesn't tend to speak to also tend to be the people that are already the minorities within these organizations. Um, so I think one of the things that I would wanna say, and this is also sort of the general conclusion of my PhD that you know, beyond engaging in technical debates um, for civil society folks to be effective within these technical spaces, they need to be focused not just on changing the machines that get built, but also the minds that are building them um, to make sure that change comes not just through technology, but through people.